today we're going to talk about uh, uh, the integrationist impulse of the civil rights movement. Uh, this is the second of the four lectures that I plan uh, on the 1960s, an indication of the importance to which uh, I attach uh, to, the, uh, to the decade. Uh, and uh, two of the four will be about civil rights. Now, by the time the Supreme Court uh, issued the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, with which I'm sure you're all familiar, uh, declaring legally segregated public uh, schools uh, unconstitutional uh, under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, the American South had been a stagnant pool, both politically, socially, also economically, uh, and most of all, of course, racially, uh, for 75 years, really, uh, since the Civil War. But the Brown decision, the culmination of decades of legal work by the NAACP, blew the lid off the isolation of the South. And certainly no area, no section of the country was more cut off from the rest of America, really a separate nation within a nation uh, than the South had been uh, from the 1880s until the 1950s. Now, the Brown decision began the process uh, from 1954 to 1965, which is the years we'll be talking about uh, today, of dismantling the Jim Crow system of legal segregation in the South uh, 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 in public facilities like restaurants and hotels theaters, buses, trains, uh, and, of course, schools, uh, which, along with the legal disenfranchisement of blacks, defined the Southern social and political structure for generations. The Brown decision was the first blow in the modern civil rights movement, an attack not only on legal segregation, but on the idea of white supremacy generally, that underlay race relations uh, in the South, uh, as well as uh, some areas uh, of the North as well. The years between 1954 and 1965, then, were what I'm calling the integrationist years in the American civil rights movement. The years in which it seemed to be possible to build a colorblind society in which, in the famous words of Martin Luther King, uh, men and women would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and in which, would, in which race would cease to matter in America. Now, while this first integrationist phase of the civil rights movement made major strides in this direction, uh, America, North and South, is obviously not the same country uh, that it was in 1954 in racial matters, it still left much undone and many questions unanswered. Uh, including the question of whether race should matter in American society. This so-called, or as I call it, integrationist phase of the civil rights movement uh, was a necessary period in our racial history, but not sufficient in and of itself uh, to undo much of that racial history or to solve the vexing questions of what is equality, what is freedom, which... Uh, still affect relations between blacks and whites in this country today. But despite the things it didn't do, the initial integrationist phase of the civil rights movement uh, is worth studying, both for the light that it would shed on the more revolutionary phase of the civil rights movement, uh, uh, which I'll be talking about next time, as well as on its own terms. Because only one other period in American history, uh, that of the Civil War, uh, had more of an impact on the ways in which black and white Americans viewed themselves uh, and each other, uh, 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 and on the most important domestic issue that we face, and one that perhaps more than any other issue goes to the essence of the way we define ourselves as Americans, and that, of course, is the issue of race. So, the Brown decision of 1954 then made the first phase, the integrationist phase, of the civil rights movement possible. Because by declaring the doctrine of separate but equal void, in the words of Chief Justice Earl Warren writing for a unanimous Supreme Court, separate facilities are inherently unequal. The court impliedly held that all separate facilities that were legally segregated, not just schools, 
but other public facilities were also in violation of the Constitution. And thus, by overruling the famous or infamous Plessy versus Ferguson decision of 1896, about which I'm sure you, uh, uh, you, you know, who's, who, who, who has heard of Plessy v. Ferguson? Okay, most of you. If you've heard of Brown, you've heard of Plessy v. Ferguson. But by overruling that case, the Plessy case, uh, 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 Brown uh, uh, opened the door to direct action against segregated public facilities all over the South and place the initiative for this assault on segregated facilities squarely in the hands of the black community itself, an initiative that that community quickly seized. Now, there were four basic aspects to this civil rights movement that was led by blacks, of course, helped by whites, but led by blacks, uh, you know, to end segregation in the South. Uh, uh, and also the movement beginning in the early 1960s to register blacks to vote uh, in the South. Now, the first aspect, of course, is the aspect of integration itself. Uh, the black civil rights goal during this initial 1954 to 65 period in the movement was to join whites in their society, in their schools, in their restaurants, in their hotels, and other public facilities. And, as a corollary, the determination of black civil rights activists between 1954 and 65 uh, that they would ask for the help of whites of goodwill uh, in this struggle so that it would be an interracial movement. So this interracial aspect is the first important aspect. Second, the civil rights movement would be one that took aim at the legal structures of segregation in the South. The laws, because there were laws on the books in the South, that barred blacks from public accommodations like restaurants and theaters. And in the cases where there were no direct laws, but established discriminatory custom, just the custom that blacks were not allowed, the civil rights movement would attack uh, that as well. For example, uh, the courts had held, the federal courts had held, that interstate buses could not be segregated in the north, of course, and certainly uh, in the south as well. But these decisions were going unenforced in the south. And... Another example, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed uh, in uh, 1870, a long time before, had supposedly secured blacks the right to vote, because that's, that's what was in the 15th Amendment. But a system of subterfuges, of dodges on behalf of white voting registrars, uh, uh, along with indirect laws that got around the 15th Amendment, for example, poll taxes, literacy tests, uh, grandfather clauses under which you had to prove in order to vote, let's say in the state of Mississippi, that your grandfather had voted in the state of Mississippi. And of course, well into the 20th century, uh, an African-American's grandfather had almost invariably been a slave. Uh, so these practices and dodges and laws effectively disenfranchised blacks in the South, whatever the 15th Amendment to the Constitution said. Now here, too, the civil rights movement would try to break down this kinds of, these kinds of less formal barriers to equality, to legal and political equality, I should note, however, leaving the tougher and more complicated questions of economic equality for a later day. The third important aspect of the integrationist phase of the civil rights movement involves the strategies of that movement, specifically a two-pronged strategy. First, a legal strategy against Jim Crow segregation, led primarily by the NAACP, which was the largest and remains the largest civil rights organization in the country, uh, founded by W.E.B. Du Bois, D.U. Uh, capital B.O.I.S. Who's heard of W.E.B. Du Bois? Good, a number of you uh, have. Uh, NAAC was founded by Du Bois and others in 1909 in order actually to mount a legal assault on the Plessy v. Ferguson case that had come down about a decade uh, earlier. And also other court decisions which upheld the idea of separate but equal practices in public accommodations, that separate accommodations could nonetheless be equal practices, what was struck down by the Brown case. Now, the other strategic prong of the civil rights movement was known as nonviolent direct action. And 
This was popularized, of course, by Martin Luther King uh, and his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC. In fact, I'll write that uh, on the board because I'm going to be throwing some initials at you. But here's the first one, SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership uh, uh, Conference. Then there was also a group called CORE, C-O-R-E, and that stands for the Congress of Racial Equality. Now, CORE was an interracial northern-based group, SELC was southern-based, uh, uh, composed of pacifists, people who were opposed to war on philosophical grounds, that had been engaging in nonviolent direct action protests against segregation since the 1940s. And finally, a third organization, I'll put the NAACP up here too, This third organization, its initials are SNCC, S-N-C-C, it's called uh, SNCC. And that stands for Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was made up largely of black college students from the South with help from northern whites. It's a, a young organization. Now, each of these organizations... SCLC, CORE, and SNCC, not the NAACP, but these three organizations engaged in nonviolent direct action. So what is this nonviolent direct action? Well, nonviolent direct action strategy, as distinguished from legal strategies going into the courts, that's the NAACP, they're going into the courts. The NAACP doesn't like nonviolent direct action, they think it's pointless, and they're very suspicious of these groups uh, engaging in nonviolent direct action. But the strategy of nonviolent direct action is simple. One takes direct action against an unjust law or an unjust practice by breaking the law or violating the practice to dramatize its injustice, injustice to society. Nonviolent direct action, then, was a moral act against an immoral law or practice or custom. And with it, of course, came a price. Jail or beatings or physical abuse or all three. Things that nonviolent direct action protesters accepted as the price that they had to pay uh, for taking on an evil system and trying to change it. And this leads us to the fourth and final aspect of uh, this integrationist phase, or theme of this integrationist phase of the civil rights movement, and perhaps its most well-known feature. The idea of nonviolence, as popularized again by Martin Luther King. Now, nonviolence, the idea of being completely peaceful and pacifist in the civil rights movements, in King's eyes and in the eyes of others, was both a strategy and a philosophy of life, a way of changing the racial attitudes and the racial practices of the country as a strategy, but also just as a philosophy of, uh, of life. As a strategy, of course, it would prove to be very potent because it made the enforcers of segregation in the South, uh, the police, uh, the sheriffs, the mayors and governors, even the Ku Klux Klan, it made them into the aggressors. It put the authorities in the position of clubbing peace peaceful protesters, of firehosing passive demonstrators, of unleashing dogs on marching school children made them the aggressors. So as a strategy, this nonviolence, or the nonviolent part of nonviolent direct action, was ingenious because it exposed the brutality of the segregation this system of the South to a broad audience, most notably, of course, in the North. And of course, the growth of television by the late 1950s into a national phenomenon was a great you know, key element in, in, in making this happen. Because with television, whites of goodwill in the North could see with their own eyes what those who were merely asking for their constitutional rights as American citizens, the 14th and 15th Amendments, after all, had been on the books now for almost 100 years, what, you know, what asking for your constitutional rights as an American citizen, uh, what they had to go through. And as Martin Luther King knew they would, Northern whites reacted by supporting the civil rights movement. Uh, 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 as moral individuals, as he hoped they would, he, they took a, a stand against the manifestations of injustice, as dramatized by nonviolence and nonviolent direct action. And of course, that meant uh, personal support. It meant going down there. It meant money support. Uh, 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 you know, that's what that's what King is looking for. 
So the strategy of nonviolent direct action, the strategy of nonviolence, gave strength to the weak by, in effect, using the strength of their opponents against them. The more brutal they were, the worse it looked. But nonviolence was more than an effective strategy in the civil rights movements. To its adherence in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in SNCC, and in CORE, especially to Martin Luther King, it was a philosophy, it was a way of life, wholly apart from its practical uses. It constituted a vision of a regenerated world, one in which morality and justice were the way of life, and it would transform the world. It spoke to what is best within us. However, like so much that speaks to the best that is within us, was a philosophy that most people ultimately could not hold on to, precisely because they were human. Now, before I start talking about the civil rights movement specifically, uh, I'll try to answer a, a historical question that has come up before in this course, and if you study enough history, will always come up time and time again. Why did a particular historical event, uh, uh, in this case, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, occur when it did? Why specifically did this phase of the civil rights movement happen between 1954 and 1965? Why did it happen 20 years, 30 years earlier? Well, as is the case with most historical phenomena, there are a number of reasons for why the civil rights movement occurred between 1954 and 1965. Most historians, as you probably know already, would rather cut off their right arms before admitting that a historical event or a historical uh, uh, circumstance had only one cause. So there are obviously many reasons why the civil rights movement took place when it did. Now, one major reason was World War II itself. Uh, uh, as you might imagine, as we talked about when I lectured about it, World War II uh, was a war for freedom and a war for tolerance. And it became very difficult to ask African Americans to go overseas and fight against the Nazis when they were second-class citizens at home. So the whole idea of World War II itself as a war for tolerance, uh, an anti-racist war, uh, uh, began to, 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 begin, be, began to, to get uh, stirrings going uh, that perhaps things should change change in the United States, as well as in Nazi Germany. Another reason for why the civil rights movement took place when it did was the Cold War that we also talked about uh, uh, that began after World War II. Now, there were tremendous propaganda uh, 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 values for the Soviet Union in its battle with the United States for worldwide supremacy and for the allegiance of third world nations, of developing nations, to say that well, look at all the racial discrimination in the United States. If you're looking for the allegiance of countries uh, where, people, uh, where, where there are people of color in Africa, in Asia, uh, in Latin America, it is very easy for the Soviet Union to say to these people, look how uh, the United States discriminates against their people of color. We in the Soviet Union do not discriminate that way. Well, that sort of begs the question, but uh, uh, I think as you can see, to win the Cold War for many American leaders, who might not necessarily have been in favor of civil rights, they viewed civil rights as a way, uh, uh, a way to beat the Soviets at the propaganda part of the Cold War. Another reason, again, something we've talked about earlier, the mechanization of southern agriculture and uh, 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 the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. Uh, we talked about the AAA in the 1930s giving subsidies to, uh, to mostly white farmers uh, uh, not to grow crops. Uh, well, what they did with the money I mentioned was, to a large extent, fired or threw out their sharecroppers and tenants, who were mostly black, and they moved to the north. What they also did with these subsidies is buy machines. Uh, uh, which, of course, also accelerated the idea that they didn't need African Americans to work on their farms anymore because they had machines uh, to do it. Uh, now, this pushed blacks off the land, out of the south, and to a large extent, up into northern cities. Now, once blacks migrated north, uh, they began to exercise voting power in the north because they could vote in the north. They couldn't vote in the south, but they could vote uh, uh, in the north. And 
being politicians, northern white politicians in the big cities of the north in places like Chicago uh, and, and New York and, 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 you know, and Philadelphia, uh, they begin to start to support uh, civil rights uh, because they have black constituents now. And so there's more of a push for civil rights coming from these northern uh, machine politicians often. And finally, by 1948, uh, Harry Truman, who was the ultimate machine politician uh, from Missouri, he you know he basically got to uh, you know got got pretty much to the vice presidency uh, 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 through the help of the Missouri political machine, Kansas City, Missouri uh, political machine. Uh, uh, now he's in the White House in 1948, and what does he do? This machine politician, Harry Truman, uh, decides to support a civil rights plank in the Democratic uh, national platform. He starts to support civil rights, uh, 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 realizing, I think, that uh, what would happen is the Democrats would start to lose the South because they would become very angry. And in fact, Southerners walked out of the 1948 Democratic Convention that, re that nominated Harry Truman. So you could see that starting. But what Truman, being the calculating politician, a good man, but, but a calculating politician, what he was thinking about was, well, we'll lose Southern white votes, but we're going to get a huge number of Northern black votes. Uh, uh, until the 1930s, blacks were voting Republican in the United States because of their gratitude to the Republican Party and Abraham Lincoln, the party of emancipation. Uh, after the 1930s and spurred uh, by the support of northern Democratic politicians, like Harry Truman, we'll call uh, uh, Missouri a, a northern state, but just barely, uh, 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 they started to vote for Democrats. Blacks started to vote for Democrats, and that spurred the civil rights movement. Another reason, the media. By the 1950s, you have television, of course. And the media, the ability to see what is going on in the South, broke down the isolation of the South so that Northerners could actually see what was going on. In 1955, a young man, or young boy, really, from Chicago, who was 14 years old, named Emmett Till. Who has heard of Emmett Till? You've heard of Emmett Till. Went down to Mississippi uh, basically for the summer uh, uh, and uh, ended up being lynched because he said something inappropriate or no one really knows what happened. But he, he said something that a, a white woman down there took offense to uh, and uh, her husband and her brother uh, uh, ended up lynching Emmett Till. Now, this is the kind of thing that happened in the South all the time and would just pretty much go unnoticed. People just disappeared. But now that there's television and a national media, the Emmett Till case became a national case. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and it started to break down the isolation of the South. The, you know, the trial and acquittal of the two murderers was covered nationally, not just by the black press, but by the white press, not just by black newspapers, but by the New York Times and by CBS and NBC and ABC. So TV and the media is starting to make it impossible for the white, the white South to sort of hide their dirty laundry, uh, so to speak. Another example or another reason why the civil rights movement started when it did. Uh, another kind of migration. This not from the south to the north, African Americans, but whites going from the north to the south. By the 1950s, many northern businesses are moving to the south for reasons having nothing to do with race. Uh, you get tax breaks in some of these southern states. Uh, uh, there are no labor unions in some of these states. You know, you have a, let's say you have a, a shoe factory or a textile mill and you're running it in Massachusetts, which is one of the most unionized states in the, uh, in the, in the United States. And South Carolina gives you a call and says, you know, we have no unions down here. Uh, and we're also going to give you all these tax rebates to come down here. Well, northern companies move to the south. And they bring their workers with them, who are northerners and who don't have the same kinds of attitudes towards race. I'm not saying that, they're, you know, that, 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 that their racial attitudes are completely pure, but they don't have the ingrained uh, familiarity with segregation and segregationist practices that the southerners do. So by coming down to the south, they start to mediate race relations down there and make it possible for the civil rights uh, movement uh, to start. Another reason is the growth in the power of the federal government from the New Deal on. Remember, the federal government is, uh, uh, well, you don't remember because you didn't necessarily take the course on 19th century U.S. history that I give, but it's the major force the federal government is behind Reconstruction. The federal government is necessary for the enforcement of almost any civil rights initiatives. Now, thanks to the New Deal and World War II, by the 1950s, the federal government had a tremendous amount of power. 
So the growth of the federal government to be in a position to enforce civil rights laws is also, a, also an indication that the time has come for the civil rights movement. And, of course, there's the Brown decision itself. Uh, 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 and with it, a broader idea, not just the decision itself, but the, what the Brown decision said, in effect, was that an activist Supreme Court now will reach into state matters, to local matters, into private matters, you know, where someone goes to school, whether somebody can eat in a particular restaurant or stay in a particular hotel. Uh, the Supreme Court, until 1954, had been reluctant to reach into those matters for reasons having nothing to do with race. They were just conservative in that way. If you look at the Plessy case, what the Plessy uh, Supreme Court uh, decision is saying in in, in 1896 is we're not going to tell Louisiana what to do. Louisiana, which is where this case is coming from, if they want to have separate uh, facilities on a train, separate cars on a train for whites and blacks, well, you know, that's their business. That's private. We're not going to reach into it. Well, by 1954, the Supreme Court has a different philosophy. They are going to reach into these private, supposedly private matters, and make decisions. One of the reasons for that was the new Chief Justice himself, Earl Warren, who had become the, uh, uh, the, the new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, appointed by President Eisenhower in 1953. Now, Earl Warren is an example of how you never know what exactly you're going to get if you're a president nominating someone for the Supreme Court. Because Eisenhower thought that Warren, uh, who was a Republican, uh, had been a Republican governor of California, was a conservative, and that's why he nominated him. Uh, Warren, for example, had supported in court the internment of Japanese during World War II. He was the state attorney general at the time. He had gone uh, to court not to strike the internment of the Japanese down, but to, uh, to support it. So... Who's, who's heard of the, uh, the, the internment of the Japanese during, during World War II? Okay, mo- most of you, and I, it's, it's also referred to in the textbook. Uh, so uh, uh, Eisenhower is expecting a conservative, uh, uh, and he ends up with an activist Supreme Court justice who wants to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, uh, Eisenhower always said that appointing Earl Warren as Supreme Court justice, chief justice was the worst decision that he ever made. Uh, uh, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't agree with that, but that's what Eisenhower felt. But finally... The most important reason for the civil rights movement occurring when it did is the actions of African Americans themselves, who finally took matters into their own hands, showing great organizational skills and, as we shall see, great courage as they did so. So, now we know why the civil rights movement started when it did. Now, the White South's reaction to the Brown decision uh, was... Uh, uh, summarized uh, uh, in uh, 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 the what was called the Southern Manifesto of 1956, which was signed by over a hundred Southern representatives, congressmen, and senators, and it just uh, uh, offered the philosophy and the response of massive resistance. And that's a phrase, massive resistance. Uh, uh, the White South was not going to just roll over uh, and accept the Brown decision and accept desegregation and accept uh, the enfranchisement of African Americans without a fight. There was going to be massive resistance. And it was clear then that if blacks wanted to tear down the walls of segregation, the first move would have to come, not even from the Supreme Court, but from them. And it did. In December 1955, an event that I'm sure that you're all familiar with, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus to a white man, was arrested, uh, and thus began the famous Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted uh, over a year to desegregate desegregate the uh, bus system uh, uh, in that city, which was a private system, incidentally, not a public system. Now, the... African-American community in Montgomery uh, uh, organized this boycott through its various constituent parts. The church, the black church, which is very important in that community. Uh, uh, Black union members, black teachers. uh, uh, Because uh, uh, Montgomery is segregated, because the South is segregated, you have a large number of black school school teachers who are teaching black school children. So you have that as part of your community. Uh, Black businessmen, again, Segregated society, blacks have their own businessmen, and of course, ordinary citizens. And the boycott was successful, which it was, uh, uh, largely because of the economic power that blacks brought to bear on the bus system. Uh, And this is an example of using economic power, 
boycotting the buses. Uh, African Americans are something like 75 to 80 percent of the ridership of, of, of these buses because more whites have cars by the 1950s, using economic power for political ends. The Montgomery bus boycott was also successful, of course, because of the moral and political leadership of a young minister named Martin Luther King. Now, they're saying that uh, sometimes uh, 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 a person finds history and sometimes history finds them. That's actually my saying. Martin Luther King is a case of history finding him. Uh, 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 and another example of contingency uh, 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 in American history uh, that I've talked about before. Martin Luther King wasn't the first person called. Uh, you know, the leaders of the bus boycott needed a spokesman. They needed a minister, really, uh, to lead, to, to speak for them. Uh, and Martin Luther King wasn't the first guy they called. They called one or two people who turned him down, and then they called a very young minister uh, uh, who, uh, 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 who had just arrived in town named uh, Martin Luther King. But it was almost a miracle, a miracle almost of happenstance, that Martin Luther King was in a position to take that call uh, uh, he actually uh, thought about it for a while. He didn't know whether he wanted to do it. He was a young minister just starting out. It wasn't going to help his career. He decided to go forward. But Martin Luther King was the perfect person to take that call and to start this uh, 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 or become a spokesman for the uh, Montgomery bus boycott because of his background. Unlike virtually any other minister, in the black minister in, in the South, Martin Luther King knew about nonviolent direct action. He had been educated in it. Uh, 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 he had a Ph.D. in theology from Boston University, uh, uh, also a divinity degree. So he had spent time in uh, both, both places in the North. Uh, uh, he had spent time learning about nonviolent direct action. He knew about Gandhi. Uh, uh, and it just so happened that he was in Montgomery. Uh, he was the son of uh, Martin Luther King uh, Sr., who was a famous and powerful black Baptist minister from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, uh, and he was only in Montgomery, his son, Martin Luther King, uh, for a brief while almost to, as, you know, to, to, to get some experience with a smaller congregation. And eventually he was going to come back to Atlanta and, and, and take over for his father, which is what he did. So it's almost a miracle that King exists. It's a miracle that King is in Montgomery. It's a miracle that two people turn it down before him. It's a miracle that King knows about nonviolent direct action, and it's a miracle that King decides to actually go forward with this because he is, you know, at the time he is 26 years old. Uh, he is just out of divinity school. Uh, 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 you know, he doesn't come from, you know, he comes from a conservative background in the sense that his, his, his father is a very establishment figure. His father isn't a big civil rights leader or anything. So, you know, it's a miracle that he even decides to do this because it's not, he doesn't think it's going to help his career. Uh, 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 and, you know, as you can see, there are all these contingencies, all these things that have to almost lock into place for there even to be a Martin Luther King. Another example, you know, uh, this one a better form of contingency, unlike the one about Franz Ferdinand that I told you about. Another form of contingency, another example of contingency uh, in history. Now, King, of course, is a tremendously charismatic leader, uh, 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 and he is able to communicate to his fellow boycotters and to the United States generally the idea, the philosophy behind nonviolent uh, direct action, uh, uh, and use it in the Montgomery bus boycott. There was a great deal of white violence uh, in Montgomery, uh, but the boycott held together uh, using these nonviolent principles. Uh, and finally, uh, at the end of 1956, after about a year of the boycott, uh, the Supreme Court declared that uh, a segregation on, on buses in Montgomery and elsewhere uh, was illegal, uh, and the bus company basically caved in. So this was the first great victory for nonviolent direct action in the civil rights movement. And King followed up on this with the creation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957 to bring his nonviolent direct action philosophy and strategy to other parts uh, of the South. King, by 1957, is almost overnight a national figure and identified with civil rights in both the North and the South. Now, the next great step in the civil rights movement took place a few years later in 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina, where four college students from North Carolina A&T College went to a segregated lunch counter at Woolworths uh, 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 and demanded to be served. 
Woolworths doesn't exist anymore, but those of us of a certain age of uh, Woolworths is sort of part of American culture. Uh, uh, they all had lunch counters. Uh, and what was interesting about the Woolworths in the South uh, and the stores in the South is they allowed blacks to buy there. In other words, they would allow them to purchase goods there, but not allowed to uh, eat there. I think there's a dichotomy in the South between public and private actions, uh, where whites are willing to interact with blacks in the South in certain public functions, like buying buying stuff, you know, buying goods, but not in what, as, as it gets more and more private, whites become much and more, much more insular and turned away from blacks. In other words, they, they will buy with them, they will stand on a line with them, you know, to check out, uh, you know, a checkout line with them, but they will not eat with them, they will not live with them in the same neighborhoods, they will not send their children to school with them. In other words, the more private it gets, the more segregated uh, Southern society becomes. In any case, these four North Carolina A&T students sit down at the lunch counter on the stools, demand service, are refused, and then refuse to leave. But they're entirely nonviolent. And this paralyzes the police that comes in, you know, that invariably gets called in, uh, 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 to remove them, because they're nonviolent and passive. The police are waiting for some sort of move of resistance, some sort of violent move, so they can move in and beat them up with their nightsticks. But it doesn't happen. And so the sit-in becomes a success and ends up spreading all over the South, led by black college students who form the, uh, the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, uh, in 1960, uh, uh, in the wake of the triumph of these lunch counter sit-ins. Now, the third organization that, that, that was involved uh, with the philosophy and strategy of nonviolent direct action, CORE, played the major role in the next important uh, event of the civil rights movement. In 1961, uh, CORE decided to use nonviolent direct action to enforce the Supreme Court's Boynton versus Virginia decision, which is a decision that dates back to the 1940s, B-O-Y-N-T-O-N, Boynton versus Virginia decision that says that segregation on interstate buses and terminals, like waiting rooms, like Greyhound or trailways, uh, 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 are illegal and unconstitutional. And they started what was known as the Freedom Rides. They would they planned to ride buses south from Washington, D.C., all the way through to Mississippi and New Orleans to desegregate these buses, these interstate buses. And so an interracial group sponsored by CORE starts out from Washington, D.C. Uh, most of the people on these buses were pacifists in keeping with CORE's uh, pacifist uh, philosophy and background. Uh, in Anniston, Alabama, uh, uh, which is sort of over the line from Georgia, uh, their bus was firebombed uh, and the riders were beaten. Others were attacked by a white mob in Jackson, Mississippi in the, uh, in the terminal waiting room. And the Freedom Rides had to be discontinued there uh, because of that extreme violence. But their objective was obtained. The Interstate Commerce Commission then issued strict new guidelines uh, mandating desegregation on interstate uh, buses. So they had achieved their aim. Now, of course, by 1961 and the Freedom Rides, there is a new president in the United States, John F. Kennedy, who had been elected on a platform of uh, civil rights. But Kennedy became much more cautious once he was actually uh, in office because he feared the power of white Southern Congressional Committee chairman. Uh, 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 in 1961, when, when, when Kennedy assumed office, Congress worked differently than it did now. It was strictly based on seniority in terms of committee chairmanships, and the committee chairmanships had autocratic power. If they didn't want a building to get out of committee, it just didn't go out of committee. And most of the, uh, you know, Democrats controlled Congress. Most of these committee chairmen were from the South because these, these you know, they would get elected again and again. They weren't, they weren't in competitive districts. There's no Republican Party, really, in the South by six although that would change. Uh, so the same people just get elected in, in, these, in these segregated primaries, in the segregated Democratic primaries, over and over again. So most of the committee chairs in, in 1961, as Kennedy assumes office, are white Southerners who've been in there since the 1920s. And, you know, he doesn't want to start up with them. He also still has this sense that maybe he can get white, uh, white votes, white Democratic votes in the South. You know, the South has voted Democratic so reflexively for so long that even though the Democratic Party is starting to come around, the National Democratic Party is starting to come around and support civil rights, there are still just people who 
they, you know, in the South, even white racists, they will just not vote for Republicans. Again, that changes. So Kennedy is cautious on civil rights because he doesn't want to rile these uh, people up. Now, Kennedy is very uncomfortable with this nonviolent direct action protest technique because it breaks the law. Uh, uh, uh. Also, Kennedy is concentrating at this point on the Cold War. Uh, 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 you know, on his relationship with the Soviet Union. And civil rights, quite frankly, in 1961 is a distraction to JFK. So, for example, he ordered very little federal protection for these freedom riders in 1961, which is why they were firebombed and beaten up. What Kennedy really wanted out of the civil rights movement was for them to channel their nonviolent direct action protests into less confrontational voting rights actions. Because, as Kennedy realized, is, you know, that if blacks were enfranchised in the South, if they actually could vote in the South, they would vote for Democrats. So that's what he wanted. But generally, in 1961, the civil rights movement was an annoyance to JFK. However, by 1962 and 1963, Kennedy's hand would be forced by the public spectacle of Southern brutality against civil rights workers which leaders like Martin Luther King made sure uh, JFK and the North generally uh, saw thanks to television. These violent incidents forced the federal government uh, to intervene in the South in Southern race relations, really for the first time since Reconstruction in the 1860s and 1870s. For example, in 1962 and 1963, the sight of angry white mobs, including a lot of college students, white college students, trying to prevent blacks from integrating and enrolling at the universities of Mississippi uh, and Alabama, forced JFK to use federal marshals, federal representatives, to ensure that these black students could register. But it was the events in Birmingham, Alabama, in the spring of 1963 that really forced Kennedy's hands and put the power of the federal government behind civil rights forcefully and permanently. Now, Birmingham is probably in 1963, well, definitely in 1963, the most segregated and violent big city in America. It's, it's not as big, let's say, as Atlanta, uh, 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 for example, but it is much more segregated and much more violent. It's rigidly segregated. Uh, uh, and uh, its features uh, include a, uh, a very violent police chief named Bull Connor. You know, if, you're, uh, if your nickname is Bull, uh, you can get an idea that this is a violent guy, a violent segregationist. In fact, Birmingham's nickname was Bombingham because of the very active proclivities of the Ku Klux Klan chapter there. Nonetheless, Martin Luther King chose Birmingham uh, as a place to bring his civil rights campaign, uh, to desegregate the downtown facilities of Birmingham, you know, restaurants and stores and businesses, also to get blacks hired in more than menial jobs down there. And he instituted a strategy of nonviolent protest marches, uh, during which uh, the uh, police chief, Bull Connor plays into King's hands uh, by ordering mass arrests and mass violence ensues. Now, one of the people who was arrested is Martin Luther King uh, himself, uh, who's, uh, who then proceeds to write the famous letter from Birmingham jail, which we read for today, uh, uh, which I think is the best expression of the philosophy behind nonviolent direct action. Uh, the idea of breaking an immoral man-made law uh, in the service of a moral uh, higher law and accepting the consequences. Has anybody ever read Letter from Birmingham Jail? Has anybody read it? I mean, before this. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully it's not the entire letter. What you read today was not the entire letter. I, I think it's deeply moving, and I'm hoping that at some point we can, uh, we, we can do it in freshman studies as a, uh, as a text. But... More than the arrests and more than the eloquence of letter from Birmingham jail, uh, uh, it was the blatant police brutality in, uh, in, in, in Birmingham. You know, the fire hoses, the dogs, the beating of children, all displayed on television uh, that, as King knew they would, carried the sympathy and captured the sympathy of northern whites and, most importantly, John F. Kennedy. In June 1963, moved by what he was seeing at Birmingham, King made a speech I'm sorry, Kennedy made a national speech in which he said, quote, racial discrimination is 
a moral issue as old as the scriptures and as clear as the Constitution. And Kennedy finally sent a strong civil rights bill to Congress. The bill would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964, passed after JFK's death thanks to uh, the hard work of his successor, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the federal government would now enforce civil rights directly in states and in localities on the ground level. There would be no discrimination in the use of public facilities based on race or, as it turned out, based on sex as well. There would be no discrimination in employment uh, and uh, an organization which still exists called the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, uh, was formed. Now, the EEOC would mark the beginning of a debate over affirmative action and later quotas that became a problem in American society uh, uh, and sparked a debate in American society uh, and still does. But as it stood, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was Martin Luther King's greatest and most long-lasting uh, legacy, uh, even with the questions uh, regarding quotas and affirmative action. Uh, uh, it still brought American race relations into the 20th century at last, 64 years late. But the questions that the civil rights movement raised generally uh, uh, are two very familiar ones to us and served as a basis of attacks on the civil rights movement from what I'm calling its principled opposition. And these two questions were, first, the question of the extent of federal power, how much federal power should there be, how much power should the federal government have, and second, a very familiar one, the definition of equality. What is equality? Now, when I call the, when I, when I, what I, who I call the principled opposition to civil rights, uh, these opponents of the civil rights movement uh, are people who oppose it philosophically and who are not, as many Southern politicians are, uh, doing it out of racist motives. And these are usually not Southerners, but mostly Western Republicans, who I call the principled opposition uh, to civil rights. Uh, uh, and most notably, Barry Goldwater, who is the senator from Arizona and the unsuccessful Republican candidate for the presidency in 1964. Now, Goldwater, unlike the Southern senators and congressmen who vowed massive resistance to the civil rights movement, uh, grew up in the Phoenix, Arizona area, uh, uh, not particularly concerned with race at all. There aren't all that many African Americans. Uh, uh, but he nonetheless, despite the fact that he was not from the South, he opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act on principle. He felt that through the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the federal government was infringing on state and local power. In other words, he believes in the idea of states' rights. Uh, that it was infringing on private property rights, how to use your property, uh, let's say as a restaurateur or a run, someone who runs a hotel. It involved the federal government infringing on individual freedom of association. No one should tell somebody who they want to associate with. Even if they want to be racist, they have a right to be racist. And Goldwater also criticized the act because he thought it was an example of overreaching federal bureaucracy. Now, these concerns about federal government over-involvement in the lives of private citizens would fuel a conservative Republican comeback led by Ronald Reagan in the 1970s and 1980s, and Reagan always felt himself as the heir of Barry Goldwater. Now, the other question raised by Republicans like Barry Goldwater about civil rights concerned the question of equality. Now, the major question that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the whole civil rights movement raised was, how would, be, how would blacks be treated in a new, equal civil rights-oriented America. Would they be treated exactly the same as whites? Was this equality? Or would they be treated differently from whites, meaning affirmative action or even quotas, to make up for past discrimination so they could become equal? And if the latter, who would pay the price for this? Who would pay the price for affirmative action? Which group of whites? Because someone had to pay. We are sort of in a zero-sum situation here because America's resources are you know, are not unlimited. Now, for conservative Republicans who were critical of the civil rights movement to begin with, uh, uh, this would become their major question in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even today. 
And the way they answered it, this question of what is equality, uh, uh, was through the first definition of equality that I mentioned. Strict equality of treatment for blacks and whites, uh, uh, regardless of the consequences. In other words, strong opposition to affirmative action or any preferences towards blacks, uh, or women for that matter. That was the conservative Republican definition of equality. And it received ammunition and support from an unlikely source, Martin Luther King himself, in an unlikely place, the August 1963 March on Washington. Now, the March on Washington, and I guess everybody who's not a senior, at least uh, has, has uh, read the I Have a Dream speech and heard my lecture on, uh, uh, on, on, that, uh, uh, on that speech and on that march, as you know, the march was in favor, in support of JFK's Civil Rights Bill, which in August 1963 was stalled in Congress. And, of course, it featured the dramatic Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech, which is the most played and replayed King's speech in history. Sometimes it's the only thing that anybody even knows about Martin Luther King. And just last month on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, it was replayed constantly. And what is replayed from that speech is this. I have a dream that one day my children will be judged not on the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In other words, King is saying, everyone should be judged the same and treated the same regardless of their race. For conservative Republicans, and many white Americans generally then, King himself expressed their own definition of equality, equal treatment of individuals, no group preferences, no concern with race. Which is probably why this speech is played over and over again on Martin Luther King Day. Now, ironically, later in his life, King began to back away from this language in his speech and began to support what we now know as affirmative action. But this later phase of his life, 1966 to 1968, when he was assassinated, gets much less attention, uh, and certainly much less attention from whites. In any case, King and his conservative Republican critics, his critics as of 1964, not today, because you know obviously conservatives will, will not criticize him today, uh, uh, they framed the basic issues of the ongoing civil rights movement. The question of what equality meant in terms of African Americans, and also the question of the limits of federal power, its power to intrude into the lives of average Americans, which would become the ongoing questions dividing Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, blacks and whites, uh, uh, for the rest of the century, and certainly on into our own. Now, by 1964, the focus of the civil rights movement had shifted to voting rights. And of all the pillars of the southern Jim Crow system, voting, or the denial of voting to blacks, was probably the most important, because if you can't vote in America, you have no power. Votes are the coin of the realm, the currency of our country, so to speak. So, of all the ways that the white South could disempower blacks, voting was the critical way to disempower them. And the white South fought most bitterly and violently uh, of all to prevent blacks from getting to vote. In 1964, SNCC uh, sponsored what they called Freedom Summer, uh, uh, in which uh, they and also white college volunteers coming from the north would try to go into Mississippi, which is the toughest part of the South uh, 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 racially, to register or try to register blacks uh, to vote. Uh, uh, as you might imagine, blacks in Mississippi were very intimidated by, uh, by this. Uh, they should have been uh, intimidated because the white power structure reacted violently to this, uh, most notably by murdering three civil rights workers, two whites uh, and, one, and one black. Uh, and basically created what we, what we could only call a reign of terror to prevent black uh, voter registration. Uh, beatings, firebombings, the Ku Klux Klan, and local white police authorities would join in. So there's really no way, uh, if you're working in Freedom Summer, to appeal to the local police to protect you against the Ku Klux Klan because they're often the same person. 
Now, this is an argument, I think, against what I call the principled opposition, the Republican opposition, people like Barry Goldwater, uh, to civil rights based on this idea of local control and states' rights, because it's pretty clear that there is no local control uh, and there is uh, no local authority on, on the ground level here, that if, if civil rights is going to be enforced, it's going to have to come from the federal government. It's not going to come from localities. There was also down there economic in intimidation. As you might imagine, many blacks who were hoping to vote worked for whites, and if they tried to register for vote, to vote, they would uh, be fired. An example of this is a woman named Fannie Lou Hamer, H-A-M-E-R, who worked on a white farm, really a white plantation, uh, and was fired for trying to register to vote. Uh, Hamer, unlike so many of the others who got fired, was fortunate because she was hired by SNCC uh, uh, to work on black voter registration and became famous. She and, the, and SNCC founded what was known as, in 1964, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was an interracial organization, uh, uh, mostly blacks, but interracial, that was set up to go around the regular Mississippi white uh, delegation that was going to be elected to, to be at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. Uh, these are in the days where, where the, you don't have primaries down there. You know, uh, The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or the initials here are MFDP, elected their own delegates. You know, they basically said, okay, we're frozen out of the segregated white uh, power structure in the Democratic Party. We're going to elect our own delegates. And we're going to go to the Democratic National Convention in August 64 in Atlantic City and demand to be seated, hoping that the rest of the Democratic Party would see how unfair this is, uh, that the regular Mississippi Democratic Party is lily white, won't allow blacks, so why should they seat them? Well, once they got to Atlantic City, there was dramatic and nationally televised uh, testimony by Fannie Lou Hamer herself uh, 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 regarding the violent denial of voting rights for blacks uh, in Mississippi. But Lyndon Johnson, who was a pro-civil rights uh, 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 president, of course, uh, uh, was still a practical politician, and he wanted a convention without disruptions uh, 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 and still held out hope for, uh, as Kennedy did, maybe to get some votes, uh, Democratic votes uh, in the South. He crammed a compromise down the throats of MFDP and also SNCC, which supported them, where the regular segregated Mississippi delegation would be seated at the convention. Uh, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party would have two honorary seats uh, and then there would be no further segregation uh, going forward, meaning 1968, 72, 76. Well, SNCC and MFDP didn't like this compromise. They wanted to be seated right then and there. And as a result, they soured on electoral politics. They basically just walked out and went home. And disillusioned, SNCC started to turn towards separatism, racial separatism, and by 1966, to a denial of nonviolence altogether. But the next year, 1965, uh, uh, the struggle for black voting rights had a happier ending. Martin Luther King that year launched a voter registration drive in Selma, Alabama. Uh, and in March 1965, and one of our uh, uh, debaters referred to this, uh, 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 the a, a a, a SCLC, a Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that's King's organization, they led a march, they were going to march from Selma to Montgomery, the state capital, which was about 70, 75 miles away. But they never got out of town because they marched up to what, uh, a bridge in Selma uh, called the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which was a humpbacked bridge where you can't see what's on the other side. As the civil rights demonstrators marched to the top of the bridge, to the top of the hump, what they saw on the bottom was an entire array of Alabama state troopers and local police uh, uh, ready to charge against them. And that's what happened. It was the most violent day uh, uh, in the history of the civil rights movement. It was called Bloody Sunday. Uh, uh, there were tear gassings, there were clubbing of women and children. Uh, John Lewis, who was a famous uh, uh, civil rights activist, now a congressman from, uh, from Georgia, he spoke here a few years ago, had his skull fractured, and all of this was broadcast live on television. Now this incident pretty much 
mark the breaking point for most northern whites. Uh, 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 Northerners came down to Selma in droves to uh, complete this interrupted march, and it was uh, uh, finally completed a a, a short while later. Uh, 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 King and thousands of others were able to march under court order from Selma uh, to Montgomery. A federal court judge basically took everything out of the hands of the local uh, and state Alabama officials. Uh, and a march was held triumphantly uh, 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 from Selma to Montgomery in March 1965. Now, of course, uh, Montgomery is symbolic for Martin Luther King. It's where uh, it all started for him. Uh, so he marches triumphantly in March 1965 uh, uh, onto the steps of the Alabama Capitol, uh, uh, literally in the face of Governor George Wallace, the racist Alabama governor who, whose motto was uh, 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 segregation forever, basically. Uh, and a dramatic rally was held for voting rights on the steps of the Alabama State Capitol. A few months later, Congress, which it obviously was influenced by the carnage on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which made it illegal for any state to deprive anyone of the vote and empowering federal marshals to take over and run any state or local polling place that denies uh, blacks the right to vote. And this was the integrationist phase of the civil rights movement's great climax, its great moment of triumph. As of that date, in August 1965, the legal rights that blacks had been denied for almost an entirety of their lives of Americans had been secured. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 had struck down discrimination in public facilities and made employment discrimination illegal. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 had guaranteed them the franchise and with it the route to political power, a route that they would uh, uh, take advantage of over the next uh, 40 years to elect thousands of black public officials and wield critical political influence, as we can see from the present presidential campaign. Legal segregation in the South was thereby doomed, although the South resisted for a few years more. And it seemed that all legal barriers to an integrated society had come down. Blacks were now, under federal law, first-class citizens, and the civil rights movement had won. Martin Luther King had won. Or had they? Just five days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act supposedly capped the civil rights structure the civil rights struggle in uh, August 1965, the Los Angeles ghetto of Watts exploded in an orgy of violence and destruction that left 34 dead, hundreds injured, thousands arrested, and thousands more burnt out of their homes. There was $45 million in property damage, which is probably $250 million, maybe $300 million in today's dollars. And Watts was only the first of many riots that would affect virtually every city in the nation over the next three years. Watching the Watts riot on television, President Johnson was in a state of shock. How could this be, he said. He had passed the laws. He had started the war on poverty. This is the moment of triumph for the civil rights movement, Johnson said. Why this despair? Well, there was this despair because laws could only do so much. They could not solve economic problems. They could not solve social problems. And thus, they couldn't solve the problems of the northern urban ghettos. Integration, the goal of the civil rights movement until 1965, could not solve the economic and social problems of places like Watts. African Americans in these places knew this, even if Lyndon Johnson did not. In fact, integration, in many ways, was irrelevant to the problems of the northern ghettos. Problems of joblessness, of crime, of drugs, of hopelessness. And nonviolent direct action was of no use against these things. Demonstrations, or marches, or sit-ins could not make poor people into middle-class people, or free their neighborhoods from crime, or stop family breakdown. And the same northern whites who gave money and support for the southern phase of the civil rights movement in Birmingham, in Selma, in Montgomery, when it affected other people in other parts of the country. These people threw bricks and bottles 
at Martin Luther King when he came north to Chicago in 1966 and marched into white neighborhoods in Chicago demanding open housing. It was clear to King after that experience, and he said Chicago was worse than anything he had experienced in the South, that not only was nonviolent direct action limited in its power, and not only were whites ambivalent about integration, but even if they weren't, even if they welcomed blacks into white neighborhoods, blacks lacked the economic power, the means to move into these neighborhoods. Thus, the civil rights movement King realized in 1965 and 1966 had to move in a new direction. With legal rights secured, economic and social barriers had to be broken down. But these barriers, unlike the legal barriers, had no face, no name. They were amorphous. They didn't present an identifiable target. No racist law, no racist sheriff. In fact, no overt signs of racism at all. So as difficult as the first legal phase of the civil rights movement was, this next phase of the civil rights movement, dealing with the elusive issues of economic and quality, would be infinitely more so. And one other major trend complicated the future of the civil rights movement as it reached what was supposedly its triumph, the triumph of its integrationist phase in 1965. And that, of course, was the increasing tendency of blacks themselves to question the goal of integration. By 1965, two of the major four major civil rights organizations, uh, uh, SNCC and CORE, were openly questioning, openly questioning this goal of integration and moving towards black cultural and political nationalism and separatism. And many other blacks were questioning whether the entire 11 for integration from the Brown decision to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had been worth it. Why would I want to integrate, asked the black writer James Baldwin, into a burning house, referring to white America. And although many black leaders, including Martin Luther King, continue to hold on to the integrationist dream, it was clear that by 1965, Another dream, another impulse in the civil rights movement, a nationalist dream and a revolutionary impulse, had moved alongside the integrationist impulse to challenge it and, in many respects, to eclipse it. And it is to this competing impulse in this movement, this revolutionary impulse, to which we will turn next time. <laughs>